0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, October 4th, 2021. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, and I am here to announce that on the 22nd of November of this year in New York City, we are going to have a live event, our annual roast, our 11th, I believe, annual roast, which of course had to be postponed last year because of the pandemic, is back. Uh, this event uh, is, I have to say, an exceptional one in the world of the annual benefit befitting a to help uh, a nonprofit like Commentary Magazine. Um, in the past, we have roasted such dignitaries as Ben Shapiro, Dick Cheney, Dan Senor, Jonah Goldberg, my father, Noren Podhoretz, my mother, Midge Dechter, Um and uh, this year's roastee, uh is perhaps the most prominent Orthodox rabbi in America. Our own columnist, Rabbi Mayor Sully Soloveitchik, who writes the Jewish commentary column uh, every month in commentary, is the rabbi of the Spanish and Portuguese synagogue, the oldest synagogue in the United States, uh, and maybe in the West, uh, in the entire Western Hemisphere uh, at this point. And... Um, uh a a great teacher uh a a wise man a hilarious man um and uh and the this event is something that you uh, uh, if you've never been to one you would find a wonderment a hilarious fun immense amounts of entertainment provided and you will be helping commentary we have levels of sponsorship co-chairs benefactors and patrons This is not a cheap date this is an expensive serious event Um, you can find out more about it by going to commentary.org slash roast 21 and or you can email uh, roast at commentary.org for more information and we will be giving you some information on who's going to be roasting Sully Soloveitchik what happens at the roast Uh, it's a dinner uh starts at 6 with cocktails dinner at 7 you're out of there by 9:15 uh probably 400 people in attendance at long last getting together with friends and people who like-minded thinkers and people who share uh a love of commentary a love of America a love of Israel a love of western civilization and uh find uh, the community of like-minded people, something that they really want to be a part of. So uh, more more to come about this, but again, commentary.org slash roast21 or email roast at commentary.org for more information. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So I don't know if you guys noticed this, but uh, there was a gigantic collapse of the Democratic Party in Washington on Friday. And for some reason, we are being told that uh, this is a triumph. Uh, They live to fight another day. The progressives have won. What an incredible success for the progressives over the moderates. Joe Biden has thrown in his cards in his hand with them. Uh, Any effort that was uh, thought of over the summer to separate out the small, hard infrastructure bill from the big budget reconciliation bill is now over. They will be considered in tandem, so either uh, if they are to exist at all. And what an amazing achievement this was. The progressives held the line, and the moderates were stuffed and Kirsten Cinema, the senator from Arizona, is a bad person who should be chased into bathrooms. And Joe Manchin has a yacht and he's evil and they're all evil and everybody is terrible. And Joe Biden has made it clear where he's going. And yet, And what I see is they had a bill that could have passed and it didn't. They have a bill that can't pass and they are now holding the bill that can pass hostage to the bill that cannot possibly pass unless that bill is uh, denuded to such an extent that the very people who we are told have won this fantastic victory believe that the bill that they're voting for is a betrayal of everything that they believe and hold dear. So I am completely at a loss as to understand this spin, except that uh, the people who do the spin and the people who write about the spin and the people who cover the spin are all the same people and they are not willing to say what is actually true which is that this is a political calamity, not that it can't be reversed and that they can somehow pull uh, victory from the ashes of defeat, but that this was a defeat for everybody concerned. That's Occam's razor. You gotta be, you gotta twist yourself into knots to believing otherwise. And yet everybody has twisted themselves into these knots, as far as I can tell. Am I being too, um, am I not seeing properly because this is what i'm saying is not conventional wisdom and i would have thought that it would be conventional wisdom there's a deadline for a bill the bill doesn't get voted on it's crushed and then the other bill that can't pass is now thought of as the thing that is the most important and it can't pass which means that they're both not going to pass or again what am i missing here well i i have to admit
1: i've been kind of Twisted into the pretzel along with them at at this point. I wasn't at first. I was exactly where you were, John. But um the sort of the more that I read all the uh progressive triumphalism, um, I started actually thinking that this is some sort of victory for them, not for the Democrats. I agree for for for, for the Democratic Party, uh it's it was it was something of a calamity. The progressives captured the White House and they know it. Um, and that 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 is a victory for them. and And obstructing moderates is also a victory for them. so i, I I'm sort of of both minds on this.,
2: it's a go ahead. It's a victory for them insofar as the very, very, very long-term calculation is eventually the party to which they're nominally affiliated will suffer dramatic uh, losses as a result of their in- engineered incompetence. And from the ashes, the progressives will, managed to take over because they're in more safe districts what have you and their own actions betray on friday their own actions betray the extent to which this was a devastating loss so you followed this throughout the day we talked about this on friday and on thursday they it was pretty much they had 24 hours left in that session after the thursday vote failed they had 24 hours to make good on this vote for this bipartisan infrastructure bill take the win and walk away and there were frantic scrambling efforts to get a vote on the floor um you know there were First of all, there were members in leadership, House Democratic leadership, giving very sour, uh, down, apocalyptic quotes about where this bill was going. And then all of a sudden, Joe Biden intervened, and Joe Biden was coming to Capitol Hill, and he was going to have a pep talk with everybody. And then the quotes got sunnier. It was, oh, you know, there there very well could be a vote here, and you know, Joe Biden's going to marshal the troops. And then no phones allowed in this meeting. And then when they get out, you you get a lot of secondhand quotes about what Joe Biden said. And apparently, Joe Biden said nothing. He didn't marshal the troops. He didn't defend his own legislative agenda. He defended the progressive tactics and sort of like this, uh, you know, self-actualization process of legislating where it's like as long as your feelings are secure and you're, you know, you're in good emotional health then it's a victory of some sorts. And so he didn't lead. He left leadership up to, you know, these fractious members of Congress. And as a result, the fractiousness won out. I mean, that is a party. It's a cliche. It's a funny cliche at this point. But they're very much in disarray. I mean, it's the sort of thing that now gets mocked on Twitter, where Democrats can never be the in disarray. They're preternaturally capable uh, governors, but this is this is a, a party that is bereft of leadership. Can, can I just add uh, one quick point here?
1: Um, according to Politico, right? It's uh, the political reports that some progressive Democrats suggested to their colleagues that the White House, at its most senior levels gave them a green light to tank the infrastructure vote if Pelosi went ahead with it, we're told from congressional sources. That's why I say it's a victory. That's Ron
3: Klain, yeah. Ron Ron Klain Klain undermining Nancy Pelosi, yes. Okay, but
0: we have different, um, I guess we have different subjects of these sentences. So Abe's saying it's a triumph for the progressives. I guess Noah and I are both saying it's a disaster for the Democratic Party. And the two, yes, the two are now apparently wildly separate. But um, I'm just gaming this out because here's here's what I see. Biden said on either Thursday or Friday, we wouldn't have any problem if we just had two more votes, just two more votes. Meaning, if they had two more Democrats who weren't Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, they would then have enough votes to pass whatever they wanted to pass uh, through the reconciliation process and this wouldn't be a problem. Yeah, I know. And, you know, if my, you know, if my mother wore combat boots, she could, you know, invade Germany. I mean, they don't have the two more votes. That's exactly the point. They have, you go to war with the army you have, which isn't my mother in combat boots, and you can't Win this way, unless what is going on is essentially a version of uh, chicken with Joe Manchin and, and Kirsten Cinema. They have both said they are not voting for the reconciliation bill. Manchin put then put a number on the reconciliation bill, right, which is supposedly three and a half trillion. He said he'll go for one and a half trillion. Cinema, by the way, has not said she will go for one and a half trillion, and they need both of them, not just one of them. And now the idea is well, you know what? Maybe we can get it down to 2.1 trillion because maybe Manchin he says 1.5, but he'll come up to 2.1 or 1.8. We get it to 1.8. Manchin will come up to 1.8 from 1.5. And then Manchin issues another edict just to make it clear that he does not want to sign this bill. He says, I'm not signing any bill that doesn't have the Hyde Amendment in it. The Hyde Amendment, which has been you know, in, in law pretty much, although with a couple of uh, emendations, since 1976 says there will be no federal money put forward to pay for abortions. That is the Hyde Amendment. And he says he'll not sign the bill without without the Hyde Amendment in it. And progressives in the House say they won't sign a bill that has the Hyde Amendment in it. So he is now raised, in response to what's going on, far from becoming more uh, collegial about how they can maybe get both these bills passed, he is upping the ante. He has now added a social, a social condition to the money condition that he already put the op-ed in the Wall Street Journal saying it would be, and said, this would be financial insanity to pass a bill anything like this, I'm not going over $1.5 trillion in new spending for reconciliation. Democrats have already negotiated with themselves that that means Manchin will spend another $500 billion. I don't know why they think that. He clearly doesn't want to sign the bill. He is the senator from a state that voted for Trump by 40 points. Well, and Cinema hasn't said, makes it clear with every word that she is saying that
3: she is not doesn't want to sign it at all. So, but, all but of that's going, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, but what the way that both of them have consistently spoken is exactly how they should, in terms of their role in the federal government. They are senators representing the interests of the people of their states. They are doing that consistently. They talk about it. They say, I mean, cinema has said, this isn't what's best for Arizona. This is, I don't think this is what's best for the people I represent, which is her job as a senator. So, she gets chased into a bathroom, you know, screamed at in film by someone which, of course, are tactics that both sides have used, unfortunately, over the years. But I think it's interesting. The other thing that popped up over the weekend, the members of the Progressive Caucus in the House started calling them conservatives, Oh, including people like AOC who aren't themselves even Democrats. They're shifting the way, they're shifting what's what's allowed within their party in terms of the Boundaries of ideology and political affiliation, and so calling them conservative is a choice. Like, look at these conservative members; they're stopping us. This is undemocratic, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that rhetoric shift is is telling.
0: Right, but here is. So, if we look at this, what what, I, what I'm saying is everything that is now going on, and this could go on till Christmas, is designed to put pressure on Mansion and Cinema to cave and sign a budget reconciliation bill. And what we don't know, Democrats are now assuming, I think, in their own heads and in their own understanding of how the world works, that they can succeed at this. And maybe they can. None of us has ever been under that kind of pressure. The pressure that we saw succeed wildly in this regard uh, as a sort of democratic pressure group interest on... On a moderate to conservative person was John Roberts in 2012 with Obamacare, when basically the entire uh, Obama administration and various other things basically said to said to uh, John Roberts, "Vote to overturn Obamacare and and the Sup- we will do everything we can to make sure that the Supreme Court's legitimacy is destroyed." And he fell for it and decided to vote to uphold Obamacare. In the, most, in the most factitious manner possible, which is that when he needed to say that it was a tax, he said it was a tax, when he needed to say that it was a penalty, it was a penalty, they can't be both at once, and he said it, and the decision is there, and it's one of the most intellectually shameful things that has ever been done in the country, and it worked. So that kind of pressure worked, and they're looking at Simon and Manchin, and they're thinking that they can, I think, bring the entire culture of the United States to bear. They can be insulted on SNL, they can be trashed on Twitter every every quarter hour. They can do to them what Trump did to the politicians that he didn't like. They can they can be harassed in the real world. Exactly. And harass them in the real world and that will be excused and all of that. And either this is either this is a brilliant calculation that will pay off or it's a wild miscalculation. That is going to take three months of time and energy will stiffen the backs of mansion and cinema will make the reasons that they are resistant to signing the budget reconciliation bill stronger which is to say that they are going to stand before their the people in their state and say we are saving you from these psychotics in washington these people are crazy and they want to spend America into the grave, and I we are the bulwarks against this evil. And if that if they really think that that is a winning message, I don't know how turning up the heat doesn't give them more and more and more power uh, in putting over the message that they're doing something really wonderful uh, with the political power that they have, owing to the small margin of Democratic control in the Senate.
2: Yeah, and the people who are apparently, you know, most exposed, the so-called moderates, but who are just reflective of their constituencies, um, which we should add are more moderate than the progressives who are dictating the terms of this conversation. I mean, all the quotes that we have, few of which are on the record, but are nevertheless uh, on background, suggest that they're apoplectic over this disaster. They wanted to spend the fall talking about bipartisan consensus and actual governance and the sort of stuff that Democrats like to think they're really good at. And they don't get to do that now. And there's a lot of people on both sides of the aisle who seem to think this thing is salvageable. And maybe I'm wrong about it, but I don't think it is. I really don't think it is. I think the iron has started to cool precipitously. The debt ceiling is going to take over. And we're going to start talking about the politics of the midterms sooner rather than later, at which point it becomes even harder to vote for something like this. Pressure campaigns notwithstanding. Um, And, you know, there's plenty on the right who disagree with me, but I think they're just more fatalistic about the nature of, of progressive aims and where this country is politically, because I don't I don't I don't know if this negotiation is going to produce anything that people are going to be able to vote on, in part because of what you said, John, the negotiating stances that these two senators are taking are designed to thwart. Pro- legislative progress. They're they're attempting to scuttle this successfully and progressives are, you know, playing along in that sense. They're actually advancing that goal. I mean, I,
0: so where where we are is that Democrats have now chosen, Democrats and progressives have chosen to spend another 2 months fighting this exact same fight. And the fight is going to be an interesting one because the progressives are going to have to bend on all kinds of things to get that number down. And when they get that number down to as low as they can possibly get it, which the idea is it'll be around $2 trillion. But I don't know if that's true. Like, I, how do we know that they'll I be able to accept? i tear my hair out
2: over this because we never talk about what the heck it's supposed to do. I know, but it we doesn't matter. What it that's what matters, though. That's no, no, where no, the, no That's no, where no, the bottom no. is, comes that, from.
0: But it matters to them. It matters to them. And the whole point is they've been writing these things about how, oh, my God, they're going to have to do triage. Look at what they're going to have to leave out. They're going to have to leave out free, free college because, you know, they're going to need that $300 billion somewhere else. Suddenly, uh, Jayapal, the head of the Progressive Caucus, has learned about budgetary tricks. Right? She's like, "Here's what. Maybe here's what we'll do. We'll uh, we're only going to pay for these things for five years, not ten years. They'll sunset after five years, and then it'll be cheaper, or something like that." Um, But in the end, uh, they do have all kinds of programmatic things they want to do. They're going to have to delete them, and I don't know that they're going to delete them. To be honest,
2: no, because we they think they want a
0: big victory here. Huh? We
2: started at 6 trillion that's what right. joe biden wanted uh, again the, the president somehow escapes all his complicity in this sort of thing he's driven this conversation he's endorsed these tactics he's set the agenda and the, he's responsible for this failure because it's all his baby but we started at 6 trillion then we talked it down to 4 trillion then we had to split up the bill into two parts into the hard and the soft infrastructure and then we got to 3.5 and now we're going to go back to the drawing board to go back to to go down to 2.1 whatever who knows but that's going to take a long time. It took three and a half, four months to get to $3.5
3: trillion. Meanwhile, today, uh, the president's going to Michigan to sell these packages. And, and the messaging, they, they at least by what they're signaling so far, the messaging he's going to be using, and he chose Michigan specifically because of the union uh, support and components of the bill, he's going to say, this is for real people. Real people need all this money spent, you know, and, and again, I think they'll be suitably vague about long term costs to the economy in the country. But the idea, the, the very strange idea that the kind of elite progressives are holding, you know, uh, uh, holding Congress hostage. But really, this is all about providing for real people that that message seems not to have landed quite the way I think the Biden administration hoped it would. So it'll be interesting to see the reception he gets on his tour. We know the press reception will be will be, you know, muted and or positive. But I, I'm curious to see what Americans really think this thing is about when he goes and tries to sell it on the road. I
0: the idea that the idea that the details are gonna matter here is a very weird one american people don't pay attention to programmatic details they really don't and they shouldn't i mean it's very hard to we do and it's hard to follow um i do think that the idea that you're going around saying you know this bill is for ordinary regular people and then you're going to make two years of you know college free uh that's an interesting question about whether that is something that will land on the ears of the, you know, of, of working class people, uh, in the same way that, uh, in the same way that other sorts of social supports do. And then you do have stuff like the Hyde, this uh, mansion bringing up the Hyde amendment is an interesting wrinkle in this matter because, um, of all people, will Salatan in slate has an interesting piece this weekend. Uh, the liberal bubble is very impenetrable, and uh, once Texas passed the heartbeat law, that you know effectively voided uh, abortions in Texas after six weeks. The idea was, oh my god, you know this is now, and we even talked about it a little bit. You know this is really going to reignite the you know pro-choice political movement for, at the grassroots level and be a huge thing for them and all of that. But as a matter of fact polling on things like abortion restrictions and fu- and funding for abortion state level funding for abortion um is 20 points in favor of restriction and no funding everywhere 17 18 19 points in polling pretty consistently that People say in broad brush abortion should be legal. But if you say, can you restrict it this way? They say, yes. Can you restrict it that way? They say, yes. Can you, should you be, should government pay for it? They say, no. And I, I bring this up only to say that the idea that th- they don't know this, like liberals don't know that they are on the wrong side of spending and, and social issues from a lot of the people that they are trying to attract. And therefore it all comes as a surprise to them that, you know, Manchin and Cinema are doing what they're doing, or that the moderates are doing what they're doing. And uh but the but Manchin Cinema are responding to real world circumstances, as are the senators whom they are basically fronting for, the six or seven senators who also don't want to have any of this but are too chicken to really be out front in public about it. So I don't know. I mean, again, this gets back to my idea that there's a, this is a calamity that, is, that has befallen the Democratic Party, which is that they're going to have the same conversation for another two months on, t- on matters that they do not have the support of the American people from, no matter what you hear, no matter though you hear that people say, oh, well, the public loves spending lots of money and the public loves these kinds of supports and they want child tax credit. And they want this and they want that. But If that were the case, Biden's poll numbers wouldn't be 15 points lower than they were, you know, three months ago. I mean, I don't know know how they've
2: talked themselves into the idea that infrastructure wasn't the victory. Like we all understood if infrastructure to be the victory, a very conventional sort of victory, very expensive landmark legislation with bipartisan support it was what Joe Biden ran on. He got it. And the public actually does like it like they re- genuinely do like it the polling isn't lying there it's pretty sub- supportive of the idea of infrastructure as hard infrastructure as being what you understand infrastructure to be roads bridges airports pipes all that stuff people like that sort of thing that's what government is supposed to do it's literally it's the social contract and they have this victory and then they talk themselves into the notion that the victory wasn't a victory um, and, and-, and that's the impenetrable liberal bubble you're talking about yeah i mean and,
1: and isn't infrastructure for regular people I mean, who, who was that for?
2: I mean, and it would be it would be the sort of very boring sort of legislative victory that doesn't enliven political activists because it's so conventional and and you know, dare I say, normal. Uh, for something, even though the scale is is dramatically larger than anything we've seen before, but it's the sort of thing that you can go around talking about how you're an effective legislator. You brought home stuff for your district. You worked with across the aisle. You know, you made yourself as a as a competent governing figure, and you're representing the your constituents as they want to be represented. I mean, that's the sort of thing that competent legislators used to like to be able to say. And it's you know it's just not good enough now, mostly for the media complex. Uh, that is progressive in all but, you know, title. But um, yeah, generally, this is the sort of thing that, you know, you would be able to say, this is this is a victory we want to, and it would have profound uh, political consequences, positive political consequences for Democrats to say that they are a competent governing party, contrary to your experience over the last, you know, the four years of the last administration. They can't say that now.
0: Okay, I want to come back to why Biden has done what he's done. But before we do that, let me talk to you about our friend's at the Bonson Group, the uncertainty that has now been entered—you know—a a period of uncertainty that we have now uh, doubled in length uh, because of the failure this weekend to pass at least one of these bills, and the fact that this could go on till 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 Christmas—is going to have economic broad-scale economic consequences. It's going to freeze uh, firms when they try to figure out what kind of uh, what kind of spending is going on at the government level that might compete with. Uh, with private sector borrowing and that sort of thing. and that's why you want to go to the two newsletters produced by the Bonson Group, a three billion dollar under management financial services company run by our friend David Bonson. He produces two newsletters, the Today.com, which is daily dividendcafe.com, which is weekly. DC today offers a summary of what happened in the markets. Uh, that day and what may be coming on during the week and Dividend Cafe takes a 30,000 view from 30,000 feet of uh, issues the national economy the international economy where where things are going Uh, I find them invaluably helpful in uh, understanding where things are going myself uh, they're free go to DividendCafe.com sign up for both of them and you will be very very happy indeed that's the DC Today and DividendCafe.com from the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. Okay, so Noah, you said, like, this is Biden's doing. Biden said he wanted to run the show that he could bring, you know, Democrats and Republicans together, and then he got a bill in which he brought, in which Democrats and Republicans were brought together, 69 votes in the Senate for the bill. Uh, certainly the possibility of enormous numbers of Republicans, relatively speaking, voting for it in the House, uh, possibly. And um, and at the same time, in the summer, he said he didn't want one without the other. He didn't want the hard infrastructure without all the social spending. And this week, as Abe noted, there is evidence that the White House either winked or actively signaled to, to – um, the progressives in the party that um, it would look favorably upon uh, the fact that the infrastructure bill wasn't voted on uh, because they also want, they don't want half a loaf. They want the whole thing. So what the hell is going on here?
2: Yeah. Well, you got to go back to the beginning of the president's term all the way back in January and early February when he set these balls in motion. It was COVID relief, right, which was many trillions of dollars up to and including something resembling a, a UBI in the form of this uh, these child tax credits. And But it was also the American Families Plan, which was another several trillion dollars worth of whatever. Before we talked about human infrastructure, that's what it was, caregiving, social uh, safety net stuff. And it was also the infrastructure bill. So all this stuff rolled in together. This is what he talked about before joint session of Congress in April was um to the tune of six trillion dollars you know we again is the biggest spending bill since world war biggest spending bill since world war ii you know this is that we can remake the social compact whatever um and in the process of negotiating these various legislative initiatives they all sort of got rolled into one in congress um the american families plan and infrastructure together became the single giant infrastructure bill which was eventually cleaved in not in half but into two constituent parts hard infrastructure and metaphysical infrastructure. And then Joe Biden says, okay, well, I want them both together, which was a sort of a progressive wish, but it was whispered. It was sotto voce. Nobody on the progressive left was saying that we need to you know, do these both together really outright because they thought it was fanciful. And then the president says, okay, well, that's what I want too. And suddenly it doesn't become fanciful anymore. It becomes an imperative. And then Joe Biden sort of backs off of it because it becomes an impediment to passing the infrastructure bill. Um, but he doesn't really disavow it necessarily, because this is clearly what the White House chief of staff wants. It's what the president wants. And progressives feel like they're speaking for the president with some justification. They say we're keeping him in line. We're keeping him on the track of his, his own track, his own self-set agenda. We're the ones enforcing it. And they're not 100 percent wrong on that. And now Joe Biden, after Friday, has this meeting, this limp wristed meeting with his members of his own his own party, where he just says, you know, just whatever feels good, do it. And sacrifices his own legislative victory. So yes, he's the he's the executor of all of this. Even though he likes to play this passive participant, he's the one who set this table, and he's the one who's who's ripping the tablecloth out.
0: Okay, I'm going to propose my theory. My theory is that this is proof that Biden is not running in 2024, and he knows he's not running in 2024. He is shooting he is shooting the moon. He has decided they're going to lose the house in 2022. He wants to get as much as he can get so that in the history books, in the record books, he will have done as much as could be possibly be done. And he, the take the win and see where you can go with it is the strategy of somebody who has a long-term goal or a long-term game plan. And he does not have one. He, he has until November, 2022 to set a legacy and that's it. And so, uh, what he was looking for what he was looking to as his potential legacy was an infrastructure bill and that's not good enough for him and that's why this is all happening not to mention he of course was the vice president of an administration that got everything that it could do done by april of its second year four huge bills and then that was it and then they lost the house in 2010 and that was it for the obama presidency if you remember uh, you know, in terms of its legislative ambitions. So he's thinking about that and he's thinking about his future and his legacy. And he is a risk taker. The guy, to be fair, look, he ran for president. He, you know, I mean, he's like, he's not a cautious, prudent, you know, guy. That's not, that's not who he is. He's a impulsive, garrulous idiot. And so, you know, anyway christine i'm sorry
3: but but what's interesting about that and i agree with the characterization of him and i'm i'm one of the people who think he might who agrees with you that he might not be planning to to run for re-election but the messaging is so strange coming out of this white house and i think what this this uh, the ron Klain factor in this recent um debacle of, of attempted legislation really highlights it but i think it's been there from day one and that's that he Yes, he takes crazy risks. He just, you know, kind of very stubbornly insists on doing things his way and doesn't listen to advice. But when things go south, as they did with, as they have done with a lot of the COVID policies, as it certainly did with Afghanistan, and now as it's doing with this infrastructure bill, he speaks and his administration rallies around the idea that these terrible things are happening to him, not that he set them in motion. And on this, he can't do that. I mean, not only did he, not only is he clearly siding with the progressives, as Noah said, but he's put his own leader in the House, Nancy Pelosi, in a position of having acted in terrible bad faith at a moment when the, her own party is kind of, you know, knives out on each other in terms of the factions. She promised something and she couldn't deliver it. And she couldn't keep her word. And actually power in that situation is being able to do that. And she completely messed up and people really aren't pointing much of a finger at her, but that was a big, another sign of something we've consistently brought up about her and wielding power recently, which is that she's not that good at it lately. Like it just hasn't, she hasn't been good at it. So I will be curious to see if they can try to spin the this horrible infrastructure mess happened to Biden. Because in this case, he's been much more vocal about saying this is what he wants.
0: So Abe, here's here's another way of looking at it. Um, Pelosi has an incredibly hard hand, right? She's got a majority of four, whatever it is. So anybody can block anything. The moderates can block the reconciliation bill. The progressives can block the infrastructure bill. Anybody can block anything. It takes almost nobody, right? I mean, it's there are 435 members of the House. There are 220. Whatever it's 222 or something like that, Democrats in the House. Three of them can, you know, three of them or four of them can tank anything. She's got a hard hand. That's where he is supposed to come in and serve as her backup enforcer, right? And he let this happen in the summer, right? They came up with this deal. The vote was going to be September 27th. That was the deal. And and the Senate, the Senate then went and voted on the bill. Voted veto-proof majority, you know, like on the bill. Um, And it was only then that Biden and his people looked at it and said, well, this isn't good enough. I mean, that's a weird thing. Like, let's just uh, think about this a little bit. They had a bill. Like, that's what politicians, particularly Democratic politicians, are supposed to do is pass bills. No one's passed a bill you know, uh, this way in years, they get the bill passed and then Biden says, let's blow it up. Like, let's throw a hand grenade into it and blow it up. I mean, I don't think we've quite reckoned with how bizarre this is. But, um, you know, John, I, I
1: suspect you're right that that this speaks to his not running again, so he's going to do massive things now. Um, but part of me wonders if uh, he is not of the mind that he'll do he'll shoot for the moon and run again because he he thinks people will love it once it happens.
2: Yeah, I, I'm of that mind as well, uh, in part because it's if, if, we, if we're talking about very conventional politics here and conventional politics is that everybody owes their job to this guy. And when he's gone, they're in trouble. Um, that's just, you know, the the underlying key focus here. And also, why wouldn't it just be the fact that we're in the middle of what they all believe to be a perpetual crisis? We're in an emergency. The emergency justifies a whole lot of extraordinary activity. And that's what they've been pursuing in the form of these spending bills based a lot of it based in the the pandemic.
0: Why would you throw away a victory? Why would you not all conventional political understanding says that you are strengthened by victories you build a platform a stronger platform from which to preach more legislative success and the fact that you know how to stitch things together and get things done with victories again i just want to point out that they had a bill in hand and they destroyed it they had a they had a they had a bill that they said they wanted and that they voted on and that they agreed to and that the entire democratic party agreed to and they destroyed it because they needed to use it as as a you know a battering ram or they needed to what they needed to they needed to make an example of it with the idea that this is not enough it's not enough but then then he tried to uncouple it right after right but then he recoupled it. That's Bible. what happened this week. Yes. He coupled it. Then he uncoupled it. Only by uncoupling it could they get the deal. So he uncoupled it. People talked about it as though he had made a terrible blunder when he said, I need them both together. And then it was like, ooh, boy, he really screwed up the negotiations over it because that gives, you know, that gives Mansion and everybody the possibility of walking away from the deal. So he re- he uh, he then decoupled it, and they passed the infrastructure bill. And then this week, along with the progressives, he recoupled it. That's what I'm saying. This is a conscious, deliberate decision to trash a success. And then you have to say, why are you trashing the success? Because he's got bigger fish to fry. He's got a bigger thing he wants to do. And he was willing to sacrifice the one for the other. I don't know that there's a precedent for this in American history. Honestly, I can't think of one.
3: Well, you know who praised which politician was praised by another politician for being a good faith actor this weekend? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez went on Face the Nation and praised Biden. She's like, "He's, he's a good faith actor. He's getting done what we always want, what we need to get done. That tells you more about both the Democratic Party, the progressive left and this bill than just about anything else.
0: So, guys, have you ever browsed in incognito mode? Not as incognito as you think, and why would it be? It's a Google product, like the Chrome browser itself. Google has made its fortune by tracking your movements online. I told you about this $5 billion class action lawsuit against Google in California where it's accused of secretly collecting user data, and Google's defense, quote, incognito does not mean invisible, unquote. So Google admits it. So how do you actually make yourself as invisible as possible online? You use ExpressVPN like I do. Because it turns out that even in incognito mode, your online activity gets tracked and data brokers still get to buy and sell your data. One of those data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and your IP address is masked. Every time you connect to ExpressVPN, you get a random IP address shared by many other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to identify you or harvest your data. Best of all, ExpressVPN is super easy to use no matter what device you're on. Phone, laptop, or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button for instant protection. So if you really want to go incognito and protect your privacy, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN, visit expressvpn.com slash commentary and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash commentary. Go to expressvpn.com slash commentary to learn more. So here we are. All the data suggests that we are now burning through the end of the horrible Delta variant wave. We have cases down thirty percent, or some hospitalizations down thirty percent over two weeks. Everything is down. We're 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 back to sort of March levels uh, of uh, of infection and all of that, and hospitalization, um, and. Uh, Scott Gottlieb, among others, says he believes that this we have, may have seen the worst of it now over, that there's very, very little indication that there are new variants coming that will have the kind of effect that the Delta variant had, and so we may really be on our way out of this. And then what does Anthony Fauci do yesterday on the Sunday morning shows? He raises questions about whether or not you will be permitted to visit your family at Christmas or get together with your family. We just don't know that yet, he said.
3: He's literally the Grinch.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, he was, you know, he was
1: asked the question, I think. And and you don't ask that question. You the only reason to ask that question at this point in time is because you want that answer. You want to get that answer. Because nothing in our reality is connected to that question. People are already getting together. Not just in family get-togethers, but by the thousands for sports events and concerts and whatever else and in restaurants and every, you know. So the idea that, that, you know, are is it going to be safe in a couple of months? You you want to get that
2: answer. And, this is, and they got it. This isn't even the worst thing he said over the weekend, mm. <clears throat> this abject ghoul. Uh, he said he was at the Atlantic uh, Festival Ideas and said, quote, it is an assumption that it's okay to get infected and get a mild and moderate disease as long as you don't wind up in the hospital and die. I have to be honest. I reject that. Um, the notion now being that it's unacceptable to get sick. And I can't even imagine that we're just talking about COVID here because that's not the you know just the primary source of hospitalizations, obviously, uh, or even deaths. Um it's just the idea now that the the, the objective here was to render cor- this coronavirus one of many coronaviruses that we encounter on a day-to-day basis and don't shut down society for. Vaccination does that. That's the objective. But now the objective is changing. The objective is changing to be a permanent state of emergency, which is very beneficial to a certain type of bureaucratic technocratic personality and that is the personality type that we're seeing in this individual now it is antithetical to how a society can continue to function it's a suicidal prescription for society and if we were to continue to use this guy as the totem he is the totem he wants to make himself to be he wants to be the avatar of perpetual pandemic he wants to be the guy who's around whom you can rally to justify otherwise Utterly irrational behavior patterns and irrational risk analysis. And that's the guy he wants to be. He wants to be their guy. Uh, And we've given him far too much power. And this administration will eventually suffer as a result of it. Their, Their core objectives here, back to the core objectives, are to say you're better off now than you were before. And how many people can say that?
3: Well, and the new the new front in the COVID war, at least in terms of re- public health rhetoric, is going to be about the vaccination of children. We've we've touched on this here and there on the podcast, but I, I stumbled across an article over the weekend that sort of shocked me because, as a public health matter, this is actually something that public health officials could be talking about. Rather than saying if you if you don't continue with the you know masking lockdown you know this kind of fear mongering that we've had for over you know almost two years now then you're you want children to die and it was a story about how nine out of the ten COVID hospitalizations for children those children are obese and you know what also increased during lockdowns when kids couldn't go to school and go to playgrounds childhood obesity so there's there are actually public health issues linked to COVID that public health professionals could be talking about in terms of risk assessment. Uh, one of those is weight management for kids. A lot of kids gain too much weight during lockdown because they couldn't do their normal kid things. Um, and, and we know obesity to be a serious comorbidity for COVID, including for kids. But most kids, are, again, do not remain at high risk of hospitalization or death with this, even without vaccination. But the, that's not how the debate's going to be discussed. None of these risk factors, none of these things will be weighed. It'll be you want children to die. And I know this because I have some dear friends in public health who say that to me when I'm like, well, don't parents, shouldn't parents weigh whether this is something they really need? No, you want kids to die. That's that's no. the, you know,
2: response. He also borrows this tactic that uh, has been, he, you know, he pretends to be this dispassionate public official, but he adopts a tactic that you see more often on the squad types and particularly Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez when he is confronted with what NIH did and how it conducted itself with regard to this Wuhan lab and the uh, the American support for uh, these gain of function research uh, escapades that apparently produced this thing, if we were to believe, you know, the really initial you know analysis around this, we haven't gotten the the full you know details about where this came from, but that seems to be the primary culprit. I'm impressed about this and his role in that. I mean, he he feigns great offense. He acts as though he's some uh, effrontery has been done to him personally, and he takes it personally and reacts personally wildly exaggerated emotional, uh, you know, responses to what are real valid live questions about his role and America's role leading up to this pandemic. Um, and it's the sort of thing that betrays his his political outlook, his political affinities, um, because a dispassionate bureaucrat wouldn't do that unless they were in some form complicit.
0: I, I feel like there is a moment here, and I, we've talked about this throughout the pandemic that the tone is all off. The tone has always been off, and that and that you know these people work for us. Fauci works for us. Fauci is the highest paid person in the federal government, and he works for us. He's an employee, and he doesn't get to be our boss while he works for us. And all he had to say yesterday was, I certainly hope that it is a wonderful Christmas for everybody in America. We'll have to see how things are going. We'll have to see how the numbers are. But I certainly hope that this Christmas will be different from last Christmas. That's all he had to say. That's what a that's what a normal, rational person says. If you go to a doctor and you've got something and you're like, will I be better in three months? The doctor should say, you know, let's hope, you know, there's every reason to be optimistic that we'll get there. But he has talked himself and they have talked themselves into the idea that it is their job to scare America shitless. And that is what they do. And that is who they are. And that because people have to be scared because otherwise they're just going to go about their daily lives, and we can't have that. Well, it, that is not a good attitude for people in government to have about the people who are their employers. It is not a good attitude, and it, it it is corrosive of what we need from people like Fauci going forward. They don't understand how much they have surrendered. They don't understand how much they have compromised their ability to tell the American people uncomfortable truths about possible future things that need to happen. Because they say things like, we don't know if you can, you can get together for Christmas. Uh, it's like, you, you're ghoulish. There's something weird about this. I don't like hearing this. I shouldn't like hearing this, and the next time you tell me something, I'm going to look at you and say, go screw yourself, even if what you're saying to me is something I need to hear. And the Biden administration is
1: losing public credibility on COVID, as it as it should. Um, uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but uh, the more recent polls show that that – as with essentially every other area um, of of Biden's presidency, uh, the, the public's faith in his handling of, of the pandemic um, is is falling. He said he was going to shut down the virus. Look where we are. The 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 the. I mean, thank God we're 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 you know where the the uh, uh, Delta wave is is winding down. But there were there was a period there where the weekly average was worse. Under Biden than under Trump. This is with three vaccines available, and uh, this is the guy who said Trump handled it all wrong. I'm going to shut the virus down, and then he's got Fauci going out there saying I don't I don't know that families will be able to gather for Christmas.
3: I'm curious what you guys think uh, about this because I've heard on, in a, a couple iterations of an argument, which is as follows: What the real problem now with how we're handling COVID is that. Anti-vaxing, anti-masking, COVID denialism has become a Republican political talking point. They won't let it go. All their voters are listening to this. You know, there. This is the real problem. The real problem is that the Republicans made this a partisan issue once Biden became president. There's definitely some evidence for that if you look at the rhetoric of, of some of the more extremely and extremely ridiculous uh, polit- Republican politicians in this country. But I'm wondering if you if if you think that that's A, true, and B, uh, if it is true, something that's really going to kind of make this much worse than it needs to be.
0: 76% of Americans ages 12 and up have at least one dose of the vaccine in their bodies. 65% are fully vaccinated at this point. According to our best numbers or our best estimates, about 30 Four percent of Americans, or something like that, are Democrats. About twenty-nine to thirty percent are Republicans. The rest are non non you know, are, are are independents. Um, this number of vaccinations at three quarters of of people twelve and up, and let's go. It's seventy-seven percent people eighteen and up who actually can you know sort themselves in partisan terms means that Republicans, Democrats, and independents are all getting vaccinated and yes is there a population of anti-vaxxers yes do they seem to be more republican than democratic because the because the counties in which the delta variant was raging seem to be more trump counties than biden counties yes are most republicans getting vaccinated yes um the republican politicians are trying to are trying to sort of thread some weird needle where they are opposed to mandates, they don't think that the government should be mandating vaccines because they want some kind of distance, or they want to wink at anti-vax. I'm not quite sure uh, where this, you know, where this goes and how this is to be understood. Um, I mean, I understand it philosophically. Uh, public health it is a is a is a weird area in which to make your in which to make your philosophical stand uh, you know there are there are other areas public health is arguably one of the two or three areas like national defense where individual liberty is in fact can be superseded and overridden by national by 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 national responsibility i mean there aren't many but th- that's one but in any case the fact is that republicans and democrats and independents and are Mostly all getting vaccinated. And maybe they slowed down and who knows what happened. And now people got scared. And now there are some mandates that are sort of forcing the hands of people like New York City school teachers. Now, as of the fact that they can now be basically put on unpaid leave, 92 or 93% of New York City school teachers have now been vaccinated. It took threatening them to get them vaccinated but they are but they now have at least one, one shot in them which is an argument for mandates I'm sorry even if you listen to me and you can't stand them i'm not talking about mask mandates here i'm talking about vaccine mandates these are two different things so i don't know i i don't think i don't think that this i think this is much less controversial And people think it is. And again, in the sort of in the liberal bubble, they've all talked themselves into the idea that, you know, Republicans are evil and they're not getting vaccinated and they're killing everybody and they want everybody to die. And and that's one of the reasons that Fauci says you can't have Christmas together. It's like a way of
3: talking to these lunatics to make them see reason. Well, and if you're a conservative who lives in a really blue place like I do, and, and you all do as well, what you what you actually the reality on the ground, for example, in D.C., the old the city council is considering passing legislation to insist that the city council and its staff all prove they've been vaccinated because the whole there there are some council members who represent the poorest blackest wards of the city who will not disclose if they've been vaccinated and, and they really should be. They should be sort of standing up and speaking to their community, saying you need to get the shot. And the rates in those in those wards is, you know, 25 percent have been vaccinated. I mean, they're bad. The numbers are really bad. But these are not conservative Trump voters. These are African-American Democrats. And, and so that conversation always strikes me, I think, in sheer numbers. It's a smaller number than, than the people in the red states. But it's it, it, there's There are so many COVID conversations this country doesn't have because it, it upsets the narrative that I think the Fauci's of the world want us to listen to.
0: Look, guys, from the moment I first sat in my ex-chair, my body said, so this is what a real office chair is supposed to feel like. I mean, I never actually looked forward to sitting in my office chair until I got my ex-chair and now I do. My current office chair... My X-chair can give me a massage while I'm working. Yours can't. Can your current office chair heat up or cool down? My X-chair can with that LMX massage and temperature regulation exclusively designed and made for the X-chair. And once you feel the customized support of X-chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar, DVL, your back will never be happy in any other chair again. So, look, take my advice. Try X-chair for yourself risk-free for 30 days. Once you realize how much better your chair should be, you'll never go back, I promise. Go to xchaircommentary.com. Now, that's the letter X, the word chair, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-A-R-Y.com. Or call one 4 x chair for $100 off your order. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. dot xchaircommentary.com uh i'm just going to make a quick note of the fact that everything uh, that uh we are things are literally going to hell in a handbasket in afghanistan just as foretold uh just google afghanistan and you know click on where it says news and you're just going to see story after story after story of the horrors that are now uh, developing and the weird silence about what's going on with our special you know special visa holders and the um and the Americans, uh, in of of no particular number, except that there are around a hundred or more who are still there and trapped there. Abra, you um, you see, you you're you're sort of like tracking this.
1: Well, I'm I'm more tracking the the indifference, right? Uh, on, on on our side, that that because because that was the unknown factor as you say the what was predictable was what's happening in afghanistan what's what 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 i was hoping was that people here would care um and they don't i'm very sorry to say they 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 ju- they just don't i mean the, the the second the second that operation ended the the whole story shut down and it's astonishing but it's also where i think you can you can trace um the, biden's um Sort of enduring weakness now. Uh, you could trace it back to that. i think I think that's where he sort of lost his hand and um, his his ability if, if indeed he, he ever had it to to persuade uh, uh, members of his party and the American public. Um, i think I think that was it was a huge stumble for him for his presidency, aside from aside from it being a um, a, a terrible geostrategic blunder.
2: I gotta say, I think it's a little too harsh uh, on the American public to say they do not care about stranded Americans, permanent residents, and visa holders who are trapped behind enemy lines and and behind the Taliban lines. If this had happened under Donald Trump, it would be 24-hour coverage. They don't want to cover it. It is a conspiracy of interests. Because the public would. It's It's not a public demand issue. They're not just, and first of all, the media rejects the idea that they provide Services that are responsive to public demand anyway. They tell you what you need to know, not necessarily what you want to know. Um, that's part of the mission statement. And they're uh, they're rejecting their own mission in pursuit of a political objective, which is to advance Joe Biden's agenda domestically. Um, that's I, and that sounds very paranoid and conspiratorial, but I think that's absolutely true because the public doesn't necessarily reject the idea of these stories, and these stories are still being published because they do have news value. It's just the placement of them. For example, you know, six days ago, the administration said, you know, we still have about a hundred U.S. residents permanent uh, permanent residents in in Afghanistan, right? That's the running gag number. Two days later, CNN publishes a story. More than 100 Americans evacuated from Afghanistan on a private charter, you know, 100 U.S. citizens, green card holders and some special immigrant visas. That number is not going to change now. It's still going to be 100, obviously, because that number doesn't change. Um, But they're still publishing these stories because they are stories. It's just that they're not leading the nightly newscasts. And I do have to think that that has everything to do with a particular focus of the press. Um, And it's not going away because the story is live. Right now we're talking about some legislative machinations in Washington and that's gonna disappear, but this Afghanistan story will not disappear. And when a mosque blows up and when children aren't uh, killed and when women aren't allowed to go to school, you get a little blip. It doesn't necessarily leave the newscast, but it reminds you that this is still happening, that this is still ongoing and it's still all our fault. And so no, I don't think that people don't care about it. I think the press is trying to engineer something.
0: Well, Crushing Morosity wins again. We'll be back to you tomorrow. For AIM, Christina Noam, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.